for Maundy Thursday there, then you heard the question of despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There you heard the mockery of the angry crowd who said to him, let the Lord deliver him if he wants to. You heard there the intimidation of the evildoers circling around like bulls and hunting dogs out to punish the weak. And you heard the unfinished creed. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And so on this morning, it's only appropriate that we should return to Psalm 22. This psalm of lament and let it finish its business for us. Because this is a psalm of lament that that descends into the depths of deepest darkness, but it also rises. It rises up and shows itself again to finish on the day when Christ rose from the dead. And so these are the words of the risen one, beginning in verse 19 to the end. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Our Father, we pray that You would grant to us Your Spirit this morning. Would You come and give our souls new life Even as You raised Your own Son from the dead, allow us, Lord, this morning to recognize that You have, by faith, raised us from the dead as well and grant that we might follow You yet anew on this day of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I had a cousin, now deceased, who 20 years ago won the lottery. I don't mean the nickel and dime sort where you can scratch off and win 5 or 10 maybe $20 if you're lucky. 
I don't even mean the higher stakes kind where you might win a hundred or a thousand or even ten thousand on a really good day. No, I don't mean that. I mean he won the lottery. Thirty million dollars. He split it with a friend. They had a neighborly habit of sharing one lottery ticket per week, just for fun, just in case they got lucky sometime. They split a ticket, and they split the jackpot. $30 million. He got $15 million to come to him over the course of 20 years in annual after-tax payments. He never told me how much it was. I'd guess maybe a half a million a year for 20 years. And he lived like he was free. He quit his job. He bought a house by a river in the hill country. He bought cars, fancy, expensive cars. He took trips to his favorite place on earth, Hawaii, again and again and again. He even began to buy Christmas gifts for extended family. And he was just free. You know, the the celebration of that winning on his part lasted for some years, as you can imagine. But eventually it began to settle down and things became somewhat normal again. I think some college education bills were paid for some nephews and nieces. And some medical expenses were covered for some other extended family members and for an ailing mother. And then it was over. Why is it that a big event like that can move us and drive us to throw all of our cares to the wind and live life on the edge? Why is it that a big event can do that for us? Why can a pep rally raise us up to the heights of emotions and make us wish that that could be our new normal? Why why is that? Because it never lasts, does it? Why is it that we do that? Christians can be the worst about big event sorts of things, you know, because back in the 19th and 20th centuries, revivalist methodology made its way into Christian evangelism. And the the thinking came to be something like this. You know, if we can just gather a, a big group of people together and rile up their emotions and make it a big event, then people might be willing to do something they would not normally do, like profess faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not down on revival. Revival happens. The Spirit of God moves in the hearts of men and women and children at times and places in history, and He indeed has done that. In profound and huge ways, the Spirit moves and revival happens. But big events made up by men only stir up the dust for a season, and then it settles down in the days and months and years that follow. All of our efforts, whether it's lotteries or pep rallies or revivals, they never seem to finish the business, do they? But the good news for us on this morning is we don't have to. We don't have to because Christ Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't just stir up the dust for a season. He stirred up the dust for eternity. In the biggest event that ever happened on the face of the earth. This psalm, coming from the pen of one of the great kings of history and subsequently hanging on the lips of a crucified rabbi carpenter, this psalm 
persists to tell you that the resurrection of Christ is the event of history. This psalm, written by the first David, King David, doesn't actually describe anything that was known to have happened in King David's life. It's kind of mysterious. It's, it's kind of an odd psalm for this king to have written because it describes an execution. I mean, in, in verses earlier than what we read, you read about pierced hands and bones at, at risk and garments being divided and gambled upon by the guards who know that their victim is on the verge of death. That only happens at an execution. So why would King David write this? He wasn't executed. Why would David write this? Well, Peter, the apostle, gives us some sense of it. In Acts chapter 2, in his post-resurrection sermon at Pentecost, Peter says this of David. He says, Being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and exalted at his right hand, making him both Lord and Christ. This resurrection is the finished business of the gospel. The finished business whose reality should profoundly affect your life. Because of it, because of the resurrection of Christ, you should Stand in awe of God. Verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, all of you the church, stand in awe of Yahweh, the psalmist says. But who is the psalmist at this point? Who's speaking here? Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 of his New Testament letter, he explains, there he's explaining that Jesus is greater than the angels of whom the Jewish Christians stood in great awe and reverence. The angels were majestic to them and, and the writer explains to them, Jesus is greater than the angels. In fact, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he says... And then the writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, verse 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The writer to the Hebrews quotes this psalm as the very words of Jesus himself. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. After all, he said, and he quotes from Psalm 22. Here Jesus Jesus himself is speaking to the Father about his newfound siblings in redemptive history. In other words, David is a prophet. King David was prophetic. This is the very voice of Jesus himself. And what he's saying is this, You who fear the Lord, all of you, stand in awe of Yahweh. Stand in awe of him because he has not hidden his face from the afflicted, but he has heard his cry. Now, how do we know that Yahweh has heard the cry of the afflicted ones? That would be you and me. How do we know that Yahweh has heard? Well, he tells us, because he rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He rescued me. This is how we know that Yahweh has done that. He rescued me from the dogs, from the mouth of the lion, from the bulls encircling me, from the strong ones coming to kill the weak. 
Even though they hung me on a cross, He raised me from the dead. Now, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, you have so much to be in awe of God about. Just look at the creation around you. The the vastness of the, the moons and the stars and the heavens and the intricacies of the human body as it works. And the consistency of something so simple as 2 plus 2 equals 4. You have so many things about which to stand in awe before God in whom you don't believe if you're not a Christian. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a mystery that has puzzled scholars for ages. Even the the pop culture icon Bono, who was interviewed at some point, I've, I've seen a video of it, by a very skeptical interviewer who was questioning him about his religion. So, so Bono, tell me, what, what do you believe regarding religion and, and God and Jesus? Do you pray? Bono said, well, yes, I, I pray. Who do you pray to? I pray to Christ. You pray to Christ. To Jesus, you mean? Yes, Jesus Christ. So in other words, Bono, you think that Jesus Christ is alive. Do you, do you think that Jesus Christ is God? I do, yes, Jesus Christ is God. So do you think he's alive? Do you really think that he walked out of a tomb, that a dead man walked out of a tomb? Bono, do you really think that? Yes. He said that is the defining question for a Christian. Whether this dead man walked out of the tomb. Ten years ago, Newsweek magazine, which is not necessarily friendly to Christianity or to anything uh, beyond what's simply worldly, and... um, Newsweek magazine published an article. And the article was called, How Jesus Became Christ from Resurrection to the Rise of Christianity. And the article examined kind of the the historical data to to consider, did this man really rise from the dead as so many people claim that he did? Could it have happened that he rose from the dead? And how do we explain the rise of Christianity and the, the very existence of the church itself Even today, 2,000 years later, how do we explain that? And they kind of sorted through the data and the different historians and their takes on things, so many of whom are are thoroughly skeptical that any dead person could rise from the grave. And Newsweek magazine, at the end of all the data, had to conclude that the resurrection must have probably happened. They weren't going to commit, but they recognized the data. They, They recognized the simple fact that There is no plausible alternative explanation from history for the rise of the Christian church except that a dead man walked out of the tomb. That's the only explanation for it. After all, hundreds of people saw him after his resurrection as Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and even the Apostle Paul testified to in their writing in the New Testament. And they could not have written these things about Jesus, whom everyone knows was put to death publicly on a cross. They could not have written that he rose from the grave, that he appeared to 500 people over the course of 40 days. They couldn't have written those things in the first century as they did and not been completely dismissed as utter fools and untrue. It would be kind of like a Dallasite suggesting, insisting, 
that John F. Kennedy rose from the the grave after 1965 or 1970 sometime. And over the past 40 and 50 years, surely he rose from the grave. You know, if anyone wrote that, everyone would write that person off as nuts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul couldn't have written those things if it weren't true. And not only that, within decades of his resurrection, thousands, tens of thousands of Jews and Greeks whose worldview had absolutely no room for such a risen Savior changed their worldviews and believed. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Greeks and Jews. The Greeks couldn't believe in this because they wouldn't believe in the resurrection in the first place. People, dead people don't walk out of a grave. And the Jews wouldn't have believed it because the Messiah they expected was not going to come and die. He was going to come and reign as king over the world. Neither of them would have believed these things, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, completely changed their worldview and believed. And not only that, but the disciples of Jesus spent the rest of their lives not only proclaiming his resurrection, but eventually dying for it. Now, many suggest that the disciples simply made it up, that they were embarrassed that they had followed this teacher for some years, and then, well, he died. They put him to death on a cross. He's now in a tomb. And they have to make up something, some story, to give themselves some credibility. So maybe the disciples stole the body and and just made up the story that he rose again from the dead. But listen, many people have died for a lie. But people don't die for what they know to be a lie that they've made up themselves. The the evidence is just overwhelming. After all, God has a habit of raising from the dead. Christians shouldn't be surprised by this. Adam and his wife in the garden, after they had rebelled against God, knowing the consequences of eating from the particular tree from which they ate, they knew death would come. And God gives them their sentence, and then he tells Adam this, Adam, your wife's name is to be what? Eve, the mother of all the living, there's resurrection. Noah and his family were plucked from a a dead generation that had totally turned against God, and God plucked them from death and gave them life in the ark. Abraham and Sarah, expecting a child, hoping for a child in their old age, though Sarah's womb was dead, God brought life from death and gave them their promised son Isaac. The Israelites cried out from the tomb of bondage in Egypt after hundreds of years, and God heard their cry and delivered them through their Redeemer Moses. Lazarus' sisters pleaded with Jesus to come and heal their brother. He died, and in the stench of death in the tomb, Jesus called him out, and here he came. For thousands of years, God had been dropping hints I raise the dead to life. That the Son of God, crucified, dead and buried, should walk out of the tomb should surprise no one. But it should awe everyone. Not only that, though, Jesus says something else here. Because of this resurrection, He says, you can rest in the satisfaction of God. Verses 25 and 26, there David describes what's actually a feast that would happen that was prescribed in the Old Testament when an Israelite had some reason to give thanks to God 
for example, having been rescued from your pursuers, then that Israelite was to bring a thanks offering to God. And, and he describes it in verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The meek, the afflicted, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Now what would happen is the priest would take the fat parts of the offering and burn them as the offering. And the rest of the animal, the, the meat, was to be eaten by the one who was celebrating such a rescue. And all of it was to be eaten within a short amount of time. And so he would invite the poor to come and celebrate with him. It was a party. It was a celebration. And they would join together for a feast. This is the obligation, the, the vow that he's going to perform. This is what he means. And the afflicted, the poor, the meek ones would come and they would eat their fill at a table provided by someone else. That sounds a little bit like the gospel, even in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Even there, this is what happens. Jesus took the words of Psalm 22 on his own lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the whole psalm and claimed it for his own. He would be rescued from the tomb. He would invite the poor to his feast. But what feast does Jesus provide for us? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. Why are you restless before God? Why, why is it that people are restless before God, even to the extent of simply denying that He's there? I can tell you why. I think it's because you're not satisfied with your appearance before Him. But the Apostle Paul helps us to explain this, this justification that the resurrection brings when he says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The resurrection of Christ establishes your justification You are now free to be poor. You're free to be meek. Not physically. That's not what it means so much, but spiritually. The the basketball tournament is going on right now. And and years ago, I was watching the tournament, and I remember hearing Dick Vitale, that timeless color commentator of basketball, and he was describing a a Duke University basketball uh, player in one of the games. That player's last name was actually Meek. And Vital just couldn't resist. He couldn't resist. He said, the meek may inherit the earth, but he won't get the rebound. He didn't know what meek means. The meek might not get the rebound. But what does meek mean? It doesn't mean weak. The meek one is profoundly strong because he has no need to make a self-defense. In other words, the meek person who has money can give generously with absolutely no expectation of strings attached. The meek person who has no money can speak their voice at the table with no hesitancy of belonging. The meek person who is known by many can freely enjoy the company of any. And the meek person who is utterly unknown can risk rejection 
because they know that God has not rejected. The meek shall eat and be satisfied with the righteousness of Jesus. The host of this party in these verses even gives a benediction. He says, may your hearts live forever. This is the host of the the celebration telling his meek guests, may your hearts live forever. The, The satisfaction of this table is one that has overcome death. After all, nobody wants to die. And we all fit right into a joke about it. Actually, it goes like this. Three friends die and go to heaven. And the angel who's on duty at the pearly gates meets them and greets them and welcomes them in. And the angel asks these three friends, So, what do you hope to hear from those who speak at your funeral? What do you, what do you hope for people to say about you at your funeral? And the first one quickly chimes in and says, I hope that I will hear. He was a wonderful person, the epitome of professionalism, and a great parent. The second one, hearing that, says, okay, yeah, that, I like that. But I'd also like to hear she was a loving wife and a great school teacher who really had a great impact on the the next generation. Now, the third person had been listening to this for a moment. He had a chance to think a little bit. And he said, this is what I'd like to hear them say. Look, he's moving. (laughs) Nobody really wants to die. Even when they get to the pearly gates, nobody really wants to to die. Those who say that they do really just want to escape some suffering, whether it's sickness or or old age or loneliness or the anguish of past loss or bullying. Nobody really wants to die. The host says, may your hearts live forever. This is the, the host's blessing upon his guests. In other words, may this meal provide for you eternal refreshment. If the resurrection of Christ did not happen, if it did not happen in time and space history, then we are, as Paul says, of all people most to be pitied. But since it did, since it did happen, we are of all people most to be satisfied. The resurrection of Christ makes you stand in awe. It makes you to rest in satisfaction But there's also something profoundly authoritative about it. In the end, everyone will bow in homage to God as well. Verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord. All the nations shall worship Him. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over all. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Because of the resurrection of Christ, Everyone will bow in homage to God. Everyone. For many it will be in spitting resentful anger. But for the countless host of the meek, it will be with joy and gladness. Now, did you notice the parallel between verse 29 and verse 26? Did did you see this? It's kind of subtle. The meek, the poor, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Verse 26. The prosperous, that is, the fat, the proud, those who have, shall eat and worship. Verse 29. What's happening here? What's the psalmist doing? He's leveling the playing field. This is what he's doing. Even the apparently self-sufficient ones in this life will bow to God in the next. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. 
Even the one who could not keep himself alive. I kind of wonder if there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek there because, after all, who can keep himself alive? Even the one who can't will bow. In other words, everyone. No one can keep himself alive. Not the meek or the proud. Not the poor or the prosperous. Not the afflicted or the self-sufficient. No one can keep himself alive. No one has bargaining chips, as it were, with God. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Have you ever done that? I have. I know that you've done it. I've tried to bargain with God, you know, in a sense, as though I could keep myself alive. I've tried to bargain with God on the basketball court before. You know, Lord, please just let me make this free throw, and I promise I won't talk trash to anybody again. Or in the classroom, Lord, please, please, listen. Just let me make an A on this test that I didn't study for, and I promise I'll never be irresponsible again. Or in the business conference room, Lord, God, please, listen, you've got to understand, if you'll just allow me to close this deal and make the commission, I promise I'll give generously. Or in your March Madness bracket, oh God, please, just let a team from Texas win a game. And I promise... You know, whatever it is that you promise, have you ever tried to bargain with God as though you had some bargaining power from which to bring yourself back from the grave? You've done that, haven't you? Because your heart is inclined to it. The death and resurrection of Christ removes all the bargaining chips. It levels the playing field. It puts everyone on the same level. And from that level, all will bow before God because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He put death to death. And that means that for you who are in Christ, the joke ends a little bit differently. It goes more like this. Three friends die and go to heaven. And the angel greets them at the gate and asks them, what would you like to hear people say about you at your funeral? The first one says, I'd like people to say he was a wonderful person, the epitome of professionalism and a great parent. The second one says, that'd be great. And I'd like also that they would say she was a loving wife and she was a great school teacher who impacted the next generation. And then the third one has really had a chance to think. And here's what he says. This is what I expect to hear them say about me at my funeral. Look. He's not dead. He's alive. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, this is what you hope for. No, this is what you expect. This is what you anticipate and know by faith. As the greater King David gasped for for his last breath on the cross even, this psalm speaks to it. He spoke his last word. Tetelestai, he said. Tetelestai, his last breath. Tetelestai, the purpose is fulfilled, he said. Perfection is now complete, he said. The business of eternity is now finished. And when the first King David penned this mysterious prophetic psalm, he finished just at this point. Did you notice it? Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. What? 
that he has done it. Death has died. Death has died because Jesus walked out of the tomb and all who believe are forever satisfied by his righteousness. Amen and amen. O Lord our God, we pray that you would give to us faith. Fill our souls, O Lord, by your grace so that we might believe, that we might recognize that in time and space history, your Son in the flesh walked out of the tomb. And because of the resurrection of Christ, we, O God, have not just the hope, but the certainty of life forever, so that at our own funerals, which are inevitable, those people there might look at us and say, look, he, she is not dead, but alive forever in Jesus. For the sake of his glory, we pray. Amen.